Let's bow our heads. Father, as we open your word today, give us ears to hear. Help me to teach it well and rightly. Guard us from error. Lead us into truth. Give discernment. And give grace to everyone here to hold on to what is good. And Father, we, we pray and ask your blessing in this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I grew up watching uh, TV westerns. And when I, when I, when I say that, <clears throat> I wonder if there are, you know, some of the young, young people, if say TV western, you know, like they don't even know what that is. You know, like that, that's, a, that's a term you don't hear anymore, you know, like... Uh, a record shop, you know. I, I told our several years ago. I, I mentioned to, to our son Chris about going to the record shop, and he made fun of me all day long. A record shop, or going to the record shop. Yeah, let's go home. He said, let's fire up the old Victrola, you know, and see what. <laughs> see what. Anyway, but a TV western, TV western. It was a it was a a television show that took place in the American Old West. The cowboys and Indians and ranchers and uh, you know and um, uh, gunslingers and sheriffs uh, you know characters like it and there were hundreds uh, there were really there were literally hundreds or you know 1950s 1960s there were hundreds of of, of westerns I, I, I the Lone Ranger I, I couldn't get by without the Lone Ranger when I was a little I had to have my daily dose of the hi-ho silver away and uh, the rifleman, the rifleman, you know, the, the uh, I, I had a, I had one of those uh, rifles with the, with the big round, uh, big round lever on it, like the right, because I'd try to flip it like he did, you know, like, and cock it like he did. I don't know if I ever got the hang of it, but, and, and uh, wagon train and gun smoke. I, I actually had uh, a bunch of uh, gun smoke cast autographs at one time. I don't know what came of them, but they, they came to the New Mexico State Fair, and I had uh, uh, Marshall Dillon and Miss Kitty and Festus and Doc, and uh, as Roy Roy Rogers and Trigger, and and as you know, his, his horse Trigger and his wife Dale Evans. I wanted a Dale Evans T-shirt when I was a little kid. Yeah, I couldn't. You couldn't get one. You get Roy Rogers. You get Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, but I wanted Dale Evans. I don't know why. That, that might make me suspect, but. Uh, Hundreds of them, though. And in the early... Now, now, I I think I've seen online where this is a myth and it's not really so. You think it's so, but it's not so. But I, we, it's at least a cliche that in the early days of those Westerns, uh, you could always tell the good guys from the bad guys how. The white hats, you know, the good guys wore a white hat. And the, you know, the bad guys wore a black hat. And you just... Cues you. It's very simple, uncomplicated. It was it was nice. So for the past few weeks, I have been reviewing uh, four characters, uh, four different roles you, people might play in a certain kind of a church drama, and it's uh, uh, four roles that any of us might play whenever one of those questionable issues or debatable issues comes up in the context of church life. You know, how do we live with each other? How do we love each other as each of us seeks to please the Lord in our manner of living? So, you know, so what happens 
uh, whenever Christians are involved in one another's life at a level where they really should be. They, we should be involved in one another's life. And, and when we are, what, you know, we're obeying the one another's, you know, we're, we're loving one another and forgiving one another and forbearing with one another, all of those one another's of the Scripture. So we're involved in each other's lives. But, but we come across an issue, and this is just inevitable if we're involved with each other at a level where we should be, uh, we, come, we have come to uh, different convictions, different practices, as each of us tries in good faith with, with, uh, uh, with equal respect for the authority of the Scripture, but we've just come to apply the commands, the prohibitions, the principles of Scripture in a different way in a certain detail of our lives. Uh, how do we handle it when in this detail or not, we, we're living the life differently in some aspect. Uh, and I'll give examples just to reorient ourselves in a, in a moment. But should there be a forced conformity? You know, I argued against that last week. You know, like, no, you know, we should, you know, this is not the church. You know, we, we do it this way at this church. No, you know, and this is, I know the Bible goes beyond what the Bible says, but this is the way we do it here. So you just find another church if they're not. No, we don't have want a forced conformity. Uh, and we don't really want some sort of a don't ask, don't tell, you know, where we you know, keep certain aspects of our life a secret or something. What are, we to, what are we to think of the Christian who seems to feel free to do what's, seems wrong to me uh, what do we what are my and on the other hand what are my responsibilities toward my fellow believer who seems over scrupulous to me uh, he holds him who holds himself and maybe others to a uh, extra biblical standard extra biblical now, we're not talking about, in these things, what the Bible clearly identifies as sin. Those aren't debatable issues. <laughs> Where the Bible clearly identifies something as sin, that's not debatable. But we're talking about these good faith differences in the way Christians apply the commands, prohibitions, principles of Scripture differently. So here are the examples. In the early church, what was it? The big issue was whether it was allowable for a Christian to eat meat that came from an animal that was or may have been sacrificed to an idol. Did that? So, and some Christians could eat that meat. You know, it came from the butcher shop. The butcher shop's next door to the temple. It's they, they get all their meat from the temple. This animal had been sacrificed to an idol. Can I get our meat there? Can I eat meat that someone else bought there? It, that, that either was or may have been sacrificed to an idol. Can I do that? And some Christians said, no, of course I can't. God gave it. God gave us all good things to enjoy. And I thank God for it and, and eat it. It's not, it didn't come from Baal just because some, somebody sacrificed it to it. No, no. And so they, they, they said it's not idol worship. And they were free to do it, and they did it. And others thought, no, no, even that much, even that much, it would constitute an involvement in idol worship, and Christians should not be involved in worshiping idols. 
even at that level. And they, and they couldn't see their way free to do that. And so that, that was an issue. How do those two people, how do those two positions, you know, how do they live with each other? How do they love each other? Um, the other issue that seems to me in the, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, New, early church, is uh, whether, uh, say, a, a Christian of Jewish background uh, could continue to observe Jewish holy days like the Sabbath. Could they do, continue to do what their family did on the Sabbath or other feast days? Could they do that? Or would that constitute a return to Judaistic practice? Is that, is that an abandonment of Christ? Is it an abandonment of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Christ and the new way? Because Christ fulfilled the law. You know, can we do that? And some saw their way clear to do that. That they had freedom before the Lord, they did it with a clean conscience, and others did not. Now, those two issues don't come up much today, do they? They don't come up much, <laughs> especially the meat sacrifice to idols. But, uh, uh, but it, it, there, are other, there are other things. Um, for us, it might be, and, it, and really, my whole Christian life, it's been, one of the issues has been, can a Christian use alcoholic beverages in moderation. In other words, you're not talking about drunkenness. Nobody, I've never known anybody in my entire life in, in the church and never known any Christian that said advocated getting drunk once in a while. It's okay. No, no. The, the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness as a sin, not for one and for everybody, one time and all the time. But what about, you know, what about just having a glass of wine? What about having a beer with a, with a meal? Some can, some can't. Or what kind of television shows can a, or uh, or uh, movies can a, um, can a Christian attend? And go, you know, is, is that would be somewhere where some would some would have a more have a different uh, attitude, have a different practice. Uh, how do how do we live with each other? Uh, things like that. I came across a, a book in my um, in my library. Whenever this topic comes up, I think of this. This is a uh, uh, 1912. You see how it's old, isn't it? Discolored is. It's from 1912. 1912, I think, is the date on it. It's got. It takes a. It takes a hard line. Three issues that once again don't come up much for us today, but uh, you see what it was. What it was. What people were talking about in the church, or at least some parts of the church, in 1912. It takes a very negative attitude. Uh, and says, no, no, a Christian cannot, in, in, without sinning against God, uh, let's see, uh, attend the theater. Attend the theater. And we're not talking about movies here, we're talking stage plays. Uh, play cards with a deck of 52. It doesn't have to be Texas Hold'em. It could be Gin Rummy it's if it's got the, you know, it's the deck of 52. It's wrong, and uh, attending dances, going to dances. The, the three chapters are. Uh, let's see. The uh, you're going to worry about me that I know these chapters if I'd known them. The tragedy of theater, the curse of cards, and the dance of death. Um, so the issues change with the generations, don't they? Change with the generations. Uh, 
but they're, but they're always there. And so here are, the, here are the four characters. Now these characters don't change. They're the same they're the same all the time. There is the genuinely weaker, and I put, it in, I, I put these in the bulletin this time, so you'd have it. There is the genuine, there will always be the genuinely weaker believer, the professing weaker believer, the participating mature believer, and the abstaining mature believer. And I, and I have this, I'm going to review these just a little today. We're going to finish this uh, topic today and, and, and move on, but... Uh, but judging from some of the follow-up questions that I've heard that have come to me, kind of second, sometimes secondhand through others, uh, some are having trouble in this. You know, I've used these terms. Uh, some are having trouble telling the good guys from the bad guys. <laughs> well, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? So, so uh, to make it easier, easier, I want to review it a little bit and then finish up. But I want to put white hats on the good guys and black hats on the bad guys so you can tell. The genuinely weaker believer wears a white hat. The genuinely weaker believer, he's got a white hat, but it's a boy's white cowboy hat. It's a boy's hat. This is like the this is like Lucas. You remember Rifle Man? You know Lucas McCain's boy. Lucas McCain's boy, Mark. You remember the you remember that kid? He's Paul. 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 <laughs> He's a, he's a good kid. He's a good kid, but he needs guidance, right? He needs guidance. He needs to be protected. He's not fully formed yet. There's a lot of those, a lot of those Westerns with the rifleman there. Mark learning a good lesson, things he needed to, to know. Uh, his sense of right and wrong is not fully developed. He's, he's susceptible to being influenced by others. And in the church setting... The, the Western metaphor set aside, the genuinely weaker believer is weak in two ways. For one thing, he doesn't know the Scriptures well enough to really know what the Bible teaches about these certain issues, whatever it is. Whether it's these things, you know, he doesn't know what the Bible would teach about cards or dancing you know, or, the, or going to, you know, what are the principles of, uh, you know, the, well, how do the principles, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the Bible teaches about drink, about alcohol, about alcoholic beverages. He, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the Bible teaches about meat sacrifice to idols. So, you know, what, whatever issue he's facing, whatever time he lives in, he doesn't know the Scripture well enough to know what the Bible teaches about these things. Uh, he... His sense of right and wrong comes partly from the Bible, but also partly maybe from the way he was raised, uh, maybe from his own experiences beyond just the way he was taught, but his own experiences before he became a believer, his own experiences since. Uh, and he's also influenced too much, too easily, by the opinions of others. He's likely to be swayed according to the last person he talked to. The last person who had a strong opinion on it. He's probably swayed by that. And he assumes, this genuinely weaker believer, he assumes that what is a sin for him is a sin for everybody. In every, but we know, we know that that is not the case in every case. We know that because we know the Scripture. 
Uh, Romans 14, 14. And by the way, you have in the, in the, you, you'll be able to see these references almost, I think just about everything I'll quote today is from Romans 14. Uh, and it's maybe from First uh, Corinthians uh, 8. Well, there's a, a couple more besides. But a lot of you can see it, Romans 14, 14. You can see it there in the, in the insert in the bulletin. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. You see that? So right there you know that what might be a sin for somebody, somebody who thinks something is unclean, the Bible says right here, it's a sin for him. He should not do it. If, if someone, anybody thinks if it just would be wrong for him to eat that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol or might have been, then he shouldn't do it. He shouldn't do it because it, to him it, it is unclean, so don't do it. Don't do it. This, this fellow who, who wrote this, Stowe is his name, Stowe, he shouldn't play cards. <laughs> he shouldn't go to a dance. He shouldn't go, well, he shouldn't condemn those who do, should he? Well, we'll get to him. We'll get to him. But what should he do? He, no, he shouldn't do those things. For him, it's a sin. And it shouldn't be done. So this weaker, genuinely weaker believer, he's weak in that his, his knowledge of the Scriptures is such, he really doesn't have a good grasp on what the Bible teaches about the, whatever particular issue uh, he is weak about. And he's also weak, and this is far more important. This area of weakness is more important. He is weak in that he is susceptible to being persuaded against, to, to sin against his own conscience. He's, he's susceptible to being temporarily emboldened against the dictates of his own conscience to do that which his conscience condemns. He can be talked out of it for a few minutes, for a while, for a day. But later, his weak and vacillating conscience will reassert itself and he'll say, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? I have sinned against God. And guess what? He has. He's, he is susceptible to, in the New Testament terminology, he's susceptible to stumbling. In the first century, he would be the one who really couldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol with a clear conscience, but he might do it anyway if he's emboldened by someone else's example. But he'll condemn himself afterwards. And this susceptibility to sinning against his own conscience is key. It's, it's crucial in identifying the genuinely weaker believer. Even if you think it's you. Even if it's key. If someone is not susceptible to doing that which would violate his own conscience, that person is not weak in the biblical sense. Uh, it's very important. You have not stumbled because another believer exercises a freedom that you do not have. 
if you just don't like that a fellow believer ordered a beer with his pizza, but you would never do such a thing yourself, you are not weak and you have not stumbled. Uh, but the genuinely weaker brother, he might be emboldened against his conscience to sin against it. And So what's to be done with the genuinely weaker brother? And then we'll move on. He should be protected. He should be protected by the mature against sinning against his own conscience, even if it means foregoing their liberty in order, you know, to order that beer. We should forego it. We should not... We should not do anything that is going to embolden the weaker believer, the, the weaker, genuinely weaker believer to sin against his own conscience. We shouldn't encourage him. We shouldn't talk him into it. We shouldn't even give him the example to say, it's okay, it's okay, look at me, I'm doing it. He should be protected. 14, 20, and 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So this genuinely weaker believer should be protected first, and he should be taught. He should be taught the Scriptures so that he won't be weak anymore. Uh, The boy in the white cowboy hat... He's a good kid. Mark McCain, he's a good kid. (laughs) But he needs to be protected and he needs to be taught. Weakness should not be a permanent condition. It's not a lifestyle choice for a Christian. It's not a lifestyle option. The boy has to grow up and the weaker believer has to grow up too. But he will grow up if we take care of him. If we take care of him. If we protect him, don't run roughshod over his poorly developed uh, knowledge of the Scriptures. If we, if we teach him. <clears throat> so that's the genuinely weaker believer. Then there's the professing weaker believer. He wears a black hat. <laughs> the professing weaker believer has a black hat. Now in fairness... He probably didn't set out to be the bad guy. But that's how it ended up. The professing weaker believer professes himself to be weak. But he's not really weak. He he thinks himself to be weak because he shares the conviction and the practices of the genuinely weaker believer on a particular issue. But he's not weak. In other words... He, the, the genuinely weaker believer thought, there's no way I can eat that meat. It, it came from an idol, or it might have. That's idol worship. The Lord would be displeased with it. I can't do it. The professing weaker believer agrees with him. He says, that's right. You, you can't do it. But he's not weak. Why? Because he's not susceptible. He's strong. He's not susceptible. He's not going to sin against his own conscience just because of the example of some other, some other believer. He's not weak and vacillating in his conscience. In fact... His conscience is so strong that it governs not only his own behavior, but he wants he thinks it should govern everyone else's behavior too. His conscience is strong. 
he, his, uh, he, he's susceptible to something. I shouldn't even use the word here because that's the key to identifying, the, the knowing the difference between the professing weaker believer and the genuinely weaker believer is the idea of susceptibility. But if he's susceptible to anything, the professing weaker believer is susceptible to becoming one of those let my conscience be your guide Christians. <laughs> His conscience is strong. It governs not only him, himself with an iron fist, but he thinks it should be for everybody. It's not enough for him that he... Well, let, let, me, let me put it this way. You might have a perfect freedom before the Lord to order an uh, amber-colored foamy beverage with your enchilada. You do that with a clean conscience before God. You don't get drunk. You don't have a drunkenness problem. This is something, you know, this, and you thank the Lord for it. It's included in what you thank the Lord for. You know, when you thank the Lord for the meal and you enjoy it. But the professing weaker believer, if he's, your, if he's there, he's going to let you, or if he hears about it, He's going to let you know in no uncertain terms that it is not okay with Him. It's not okay with Him. It's not enough that He abstains. He thinks you should too. You should too. And He may even describe Himself because He's so upset by what He's heard about somebody doing. He's... He's so upset about it, he may describe himself as having stumbled, but he's not stumbled. Why? Because he's not susceptible to doing it. He's not susceptible to taking a drink just because someone else did. He's upset about it. He's not weakened by it. He's not, he's not going wobbly about it. So what is to be done with this? What is to be done with this professing weaker believer? Who, profess, who thinks of himself as weak, professes himself to be weak, but he's not weak, he's strong. He is to be resisted and corrected. Jesus did not bend to those who considered that his disciples, that, that his disciples were sinning when they plucked heads of grain and ate them on the Sabbath. You know why, they, you know why the Pharisees didn't like that? They were plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath because that's harvesting. In the old Testament, you know, work on the Sabbath. You're harvesting on the Sabbath. And they shouldn't be. That's harvesting. They didn't care if it was, you know, just plucking the heads of grain or if it was the John Deere tractor. It didn't matter. Harvesting's harvesting. It's wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. Did Jesus, did Jesus uh, bend to them? No. He defended his disciples. Uh, did, uh, did Jesus stop healing on the Sabbath because some had the idea that if, if Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, even supernaturally, he was doing a, a doctor's work on the Sabbath. That was, that's what they were upset about. Doctors shouldn't work on the, on the Sabbath. And the healing works, healing works should not happen on the Sabbath. 
And so the, the, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, and they were upset that it happened on the Sabbath. Did Jesus stop because they thought it was wrong? No, he didn't. Um, the Apostle Peter caved. He caved. He folded uh, to the prejudicial attitudes of certain men from James. Galatians chapter 2 says, when they came from Jerusalem to Antioch to see what God is doing among the Gentiles, Peter had been in the habit of eating with the Gentiles. Presumably, and maybe this is uncertain, but it seemed like to me maybe may have been eating what the Gentiles ate. But when certain men from James came, they didn't like that. They thought it was wrong for Peter to be uh, eating with the Gentiles and, or, and maybe eating what they ate. And Peter caved. He caved to their, he caved to their, uh, you know, to their expectations. And, but it was a mistake. And the Apostle Paul called him out on it and said, that's no, that's not right. Now, it involves more than just a debatable issue because it wasn't a de debatable issue. It was a, <laughs> it was a gospel issue. But still, there's that, no, uh, resisted, no, resisted, corrected. Romans 14, 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Do not, think about that as an instruction. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So someone, so someone, the meat sacrifice to idols, say. How do you, how do you do that? Some, the, the professing weaker believer says, you know what, I couldn't do that, with a, I couldn't eat that meat without feeling I had sinned against God, and, and you can't either because it's a sin. How would you obey this? Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. I th wouldn't you have to say, wouldn't you have to say something like, if you think you shouldn't, you shouldn't. I respect that. Don't do it. I wouldn't want to do anything to persuade you to sin against your own conscience. But if you say, but I thank God for it and I eat it. No, it's not evil. It isn't evil in and of itself. First Corinthians 10, this, this, you don't have this in the handout in the, in the insert, but 1 Corinthians 10, 29. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Well, it's a rhetorical question, but it, what it really says, it should not. It shouldn't. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because, I, because of that for which I give thanks. The professional weaker brother, he's wearing a black hat. He didn't mean to, but he's wearing a black hat. He's to be resisted and corrected, not confronted and accosted, not attacked and humiliated, not without gentleness, not without grace, but resisted, 
and corrected just the same and really persuaded to trade in his black hat for a white one. <laughs> There's two perfectly good white hats coming up that he can wear. But, pl but stop, please, being a professing weaker believer. Become an abstaining mature believer instead. You don't know what that is yet, but you will in just a couple of minutes. Now we get to the last two characters. They're both wearing white hats, gleaming white. They're both mature. They're grown-ups. And they're really mature in the very same ways that the genuinely weaker brother is weak. On the one hand, in his, you know, just at the same two areas of weakness you know, that the genuine, genuinely weaker believer has, uh, they're, they're strong in it. They're mature in it. One, they're mature in that their grasp of the Scriptures is such. This is both the abstaining mature and the, mature and the uh, participating mature. Their grasp of the Scriptures is such that they know what the Bible teaches about their questionable issue, their debatable issue. And, and probably even more importantly, they know what the Bible does not teach about it. In other words, they know the limits of the biblical teaching. And even in the case of the mature brother who happens to be an abstainer, say on the, on the issue of alcoholic beverages, for example, the mature believer realizes that while the Scripture clearly teaches that drunkenness is a sin against God, not only for them but for everyone, not only one time but all the time, he also sees the biblical, that the biblical case for total abstinence is not nearly as certain as that. In other words, the mature believer can see where another believer in good faith can come to a different conviction, a different practice. So the mature believer is strong in his knowledge of the Scriptures as it pertains to these moral issues. And secondly, and then once again more importantly, he is mature in that no matter what his conviction is on a particular issue, no matter what his practice is, he's not easily shaken from it. He's not going to abandon his position or change his practice simply on the strength of someone else's example. He is, in other words, he is what Romans 14 says he should be, Romans 14, 5, he is fully convinced in his own mind. Romans 14.5 says, be fully convinced in your own mind. He's done it. He's fully convinced in his own mind. That's the biblical instruction. The, the mature believer's done it. His will is strong in the matter. His mind is made up. He doesn't vacillate. His opinion doesn't change depending on what he heard someone say or what he, he, he saw somebody do. He's mature. He knows his mind. He knows who he is. He's grown up. He's formed. Now, this mature believer comes in two varieties. There's the participating mature believer and the abstaining mature believer. The participating mature believer is the one who gives thanks to God for his meat. He enjoys it as a gift of God, even if it came from an animal that may have been sacrificed to an idol. This early, early uh, 20th century, this, ma this participating mature believer would be the one who saw no problem with playing gin rubbing with the family on family game night, even though it had a deck of cards in it. <laughs> the same one that the gamblers use. 
the participating mature believer back in this day, he'd be someone who thought, no, no, there's nothing wrong with going to a square dance and we're going to do it. Um, or attend the theater. The participating mature believer is the one, like maybe today, he enjoys a glass of wine with his dinner. This is a, it's freedom in the Lord to do it. It's all good thing. God gave us all good gifts to enjoy. He does it. He has freedom before the Lord in these things. He gives thanks to God, and he walks in the freedom that is his. Now, he's careful not to use his liberty in such a way that he'd run roughshod over a genuinely weaker believer. He wouldn't want it. He doesn't tempt. He doesn't not haphazardly tempt someone to sin against their own conscience. And he's even willing to become an abstaining mature believer when the situation calls for it. He will forego his liberty in a situation where there might be a genuinely weaker believer there who could be emboldened to sin his own conscience against his own conscience. But apart from that, he has freedom to participate in an activity that some other Christians do not, and he walks in the freedom that is, that is his. What is to be done with a participating mature believer? He's to be respected, and this is what in the notes, that's in the notes, he's to be respected and left alone. I tried and tried and tried to come up with something that sounded better than left alone, but I couldn't improve on it. I couldn't improve on it. He's to be respected and left alone. In other words, he's not to be hindered. He's not to be challenged in his liberty. Romans 14.3, Let not the one who abstains past judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him Romans 14 13 therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother so that's the participating mature believer lastly finally and you're going to be one of these four things when you face these issues is the abstaining mature believer his hat is also white, gleaming white. No difference between the participating and the abstaining in terms of their, you know, they're, they're good guys. Where the participating mature believer participates, the mature believer abstains. He may be abstaining in a particular case to protect a genuinely weaker believer, guarding him against sinning against his own conscience, and then in that case, his hat is almost extra white. I mean, that's a hero. That's a, that, that's a hero who, who, who abstains for that reason. But he, he really is Christ-like in his attitude. He's doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but counting others is more significant than himself. You know? So in other words, he, he would protect someone else rather than insist on exercising his own liberty. He, so he doesn't insist on exercising his liberty, but there, there's probably another reason why the abstaining mature believer abstains. And this, this is probably more likely. The abstaining mature believer may have a personal and individual conviction that for him personally to participate in this activity, whatever it is, eating the meat, playing the card game, ordering the beer with the meal, to participate for him personally would be a sin. 
not necessarily for anyone else, because he knows the Scripture too. He knows the Bible comes up short of condemning these things. But for him it is. First century believer, is some, he'd be someone who really couldn't eat that meat that had a connection with idol worship with a clean conscience before God. This fellow, he really couldn't play the card. He really couldn't do it. He couldn't have a deck of cards in his house and feel good about it. So he doesn't. He abstains. His hat is white. Today he'd be someone who maybe could never partake of an alcoholic beverage without feeling, even knowing that he'd sinned against God. He's mature in his knowledge of Scriptures. He'd know it could not be a sin for everybody, but for him it would be. I, I have a very good friend whose situation is exactly that with regard to alcoholic beverages. And let me tell you how he came by it. He say, and, and it's not, by the way, I'm not lying to you. I really have a friend. It's not me. <laughs> I really do have a friend. Alcoholic, uh, abuse of alcohol is a part of what he got saved from when the Lord saved him so many years ago. Uh, drunkenness was one of the sins that marked his original repentance when he became a believer. And ever since then, He's had the very strong sense that for him, for him, alcohol, with the alcoholic that's something that needed to be set aside as part of the old life. And no, not for him. And and it isn't because it isn't because if he thought if he got a whiff of the stuff he's going to fall off the wagon and he'll you know he'll be back in his old ways. No, that's not it at all. It's his sense that for him, abstaining is what pleases the Lord. For him. He's mature in his faith. He knows what the Bible teaches. So does it bother him when he has a dinner companion that, uh, you know, that orders a glass of wine? No, not in the least. Not in the least. He doesn't condemn it. He doesn't think it's a sin for the other fellow. But for him it is. It's an expression, and his abstaining in that is, is an expression of his uh, thanksgiving for his salvation, his dependence on the Lord, his, his devotion, his sacrifice. It's part of where we started this thing. It's part of the holy of holies of his personal relationship with the Lord. And that abstaining mature believer is to... What's, what, what should, how should we treat him? He's to be respected and left alone in that. This part, you know, when we, when we think of this whole topic, uh, there, there's one way to approach it where you're just thinking, well, what's okay and what's not okay? Who's right and who's wrong? But you know what all this instruction is about? It is about protecting and nurturing and treasuring that personal and private and inner walk with the Lord. 
when when you receive an invitation, the invitation to come to Christ is more than an invitation to get your sins forgiven, to go to heaven when you die. It's an invitation into relationship, isn't it? So Jesus says, pray in private, right? Pray in private. Pray in ways where it, it can't be for show, where no one else is going to know about it. Make it between you and the Lord. He says, when you fast, do the same thing. Fasting would be something in there, in that in that holy of holies of your relationship with the Lord. When you fast, Jesus says, don't do it so that other people know about it. Make it between you and the Lord. Keep, keep it there. You know, salvation is more than a legal arrangement with God. Just like marriage. Marriage is more than a, uh, a legal arrangement with another person, right? It's also a relationship that... Uh, uh, that is uh, that is personal and private and between the two, between the two, and that's why it takes its own shape. That's why it's that's why it's unique. And the relationship with the Lord is is this is the same way. Uh, let me end with this: the risen Jesus in Revelation two says to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That no one knows except the one who receives it. There it is again. Christianity is not just a legal arrangement with the judge of all mankind, although it is that. It is an invitation into a relationship and there are aspects of that relationship that are just between you and the Lord. <laughs> That's what Paul is talking about here. And he's saying where people land on these issues, whether they are abstaining mature or participating mature, or even if they're genuinely weaker and we have to protect them and teach them, but that is part, their position on that, their practice in that, is, is, is part of this holy thing, this, this inner and personal and private relationship with the Lord that we need to respect in other people and in ourselves. And in ourselves and treasure that and nurture that. The part, of your, the part of your walk that is that, is personal relationship. It's between you and the Lord, and, that, and it, it has to be there, doesn't it? It has to be there. Or else it's not, it, it's not real. Jesus says to some who have a lot of religion, depart from me, I never knew you. This is where we know the Lord. It's precious, it's holy, it's necessary, 
is to be nurtured, to be guarded in each other and in ourselves. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, grant grace in this place and among these people to know you and to know you better, to love you and to love you better. Thank you that there is a sense in which every soul that knows you already has, there's a sense in which we have that white stone already, uh, that there's a, uh, there are aspects of our walk before you that are simply between the believer and his or her Lord. What a wonder that mere man, sinful man, can know you on a personal level. It's of surpassing worth, Lord, our greatest treasure, and we thank you for it. Increase faith in every believing heart here today and grant saving faith and the beginnings of real and true relationship with you in any who are outside of Christ, but open to receiving your indescribable gift and beginning a real relationship with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.